Thanks, Margie. G'day, everyone. I'm Dave. Uh, if we haven't met before, lovely to uh, have you here, particularly uh, as we're looking at a topic uh, that's so relevant uh, to so many of us, which is the topic of contentment. As Ben said uh, earlier on, uh, contentment is an issue that actually strikes at the core of our human existence. Uh, and, and truthfully told within our culture, certainly today, but it's not a modern expression, it's actually a very, very ancient one. Contentment for us is the holy grail for many of us of life. Um, the desire to be content. Um, today we're looking at the question, uh, will being a Christian make me content? Um, it's probably worth spending just a bit of time on the word itself, content. Uh, it's a word that actually at its root core means enough. Enough. Not like, I've had enough of you, like I've annoyed at you, but enough like I've had a good thing. For my 40th birthday, I went to a Brazilian restaurant. Where's Raul? Where are you? There he is. Now listen, I'm going to mispronounce this. I went to a Turisco, say it for me. Turisco, what, what is it? Huh? Oh, listen, a Brazilian restaurant, okay? <laughs> I keep getting confused between the Turisco restaurant and the sausage, the Turisco, anyway, whatever. It's this restaurant, and I'm fairly certain this is what happened. At these Brazilian restaurants, the waiters walk around with swords, like they are swords full of meat. And they're so big, it's pretty much like the whole cow was on a sword. I'm pretty sure they slaughtered the cow with, the, sorry for any vegans here, but this is true. And they go around from table to table and they just carve off meat onto your plate. What a culture you have. How are you all so thin? I don't understand. And on your table, you've got a, um, a piece of wood and half of it is painted green and half of it is painted red. You get the picture? So you've got a stop and go sign. And so if you're happy to keep it coming, have it on green. But if you reach the point where you say, enough! Put it on red. No more. No more. That's what content means. I've had enough. I'm satisfied. I'm fulfilled. I'm not satisfied with what I'm eating. I'm satisfied in life. And as I said before, it really is the holy grail of our culture. From the moment as children, we hear the words, happily ever after. We understand that when most of us think of what it means to live a successful life, we're not talking about being happy from time to time. Oh, I'm I've had a good day. Happily ever after is the picture of contentment forever. I, I've made it. I don't need more. I'm, I'm at a good place. And, and all of us, I think, want that. All of us desire that. It's, it's a universal human feeling. And so the question we're asking today is a good one. Will being a Christian give it to me? Because most of us struggle to find it. We, we have little bursts of it, but not prolonged periods. So will being a Christian be the thing that gives that to me? And you'll be asking probably from two different perspectives here today. Number one, if you're not a Christian here today, if you're a guest or visitor, you've been coming for a while, you're not quite sure where you are with uh, Jesus and Christian things, you know, as I consider the things of Jesus, is it going to give me what I want? Is it actually going to provide the thing that I want most of all? Uh, But it's very possible, of course, that as a Christian, you're asking the same question. You might be facing any number of things in life or facing nothing at all and thinking, man, am I actually going to get satisfied from this? What does God actually provide for me in the middle of of my life? Well, to answer that question, uh, what we're going to do is what we always do here at church. We're going to go to the Bible, and in particular, uh, we're going to look at what Jesus says to us. Now, there's a very particular reason for that. Um, As the name implies... Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. Christ isn't the surname. It's not Joe Christ, Mary Christ, it's Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It means king, God's king, the anointed one who speaks. Now, what we need to understand as we approach Christianity is that Christianity is not a message from Jesus Christ. Christianity is Jesus Christ. He is both its messenger, but its message. Um, So when he speaks about life, 
Well, um, it's crucial that we understand that what he says is what Christianity is. And he presents it to us very accurately. But before we look at what he says, and we're going to look at a parable he tells in a moment, I need to give you a word of warning. Um, it's not possible to consider the, the message of Jesus, what he says, what he did, what he means, um, without becoming aware of a culture clash. Jesus clashes with culture continuously. He did back 2,000 years ago. He does today. He's a man who relentlessly marches to his own drumbeat. Um, come what may, no matter the cost, it costs him his life. Yet he always speaks the truth. We saw a little bit of that last week in the passage we looked at about happiness. How does he recruit his followers? He doesn't offer them money and popularity. He offers them death. He goes up to the morning and he says, you are blessed. In a time when wealth and prosperity, power and authority was aligned with God's favor, he saves his fiercest criticism for religious hypocrites and those in power. Culture clash continuously. And I want to say about this topic, we see it, we feel it. As we look at it, you will feel it. So strap yourself in, be ready for what Jesus says. Um, but I also want to say I'm utterly persuaded that Jesus, what he says is not only utterly countercultural, utterly counterintuitive often, it's also utterly true um, and a life-transforming message that he gives us. So I'm going to pray again that we would apply our minds to what he says and then uh, let's, look at, let's look at what Jesus tells us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, you know our minds, you know our hearts, you know our souls, you know the distractions of our heart and soul, you know the weeks, the months, the years that we've had, all the things we bring into um, hearing from you, and you know how easy it is for us to uh, be distracted. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning hear what you have to say. You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that Jesus says, and, and we would not leave here the same, but changed and transformed uh, through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what does Jesus do? Well, today uh, I want to look at a parable that he tells in Luke chapter 12. As Ben said, if you've got a Bible, open it up, Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one, grab one from the welcome table after this. The context of this parable is um, fairly straightforward. Jesus is in a countryside kind of setting, a rural setting. He's on the way to Jerusalem where he's going to get killed, um, but he's still preaching and teaching as he goes. He's teaching incredible truths about life and death and everything in between when, at the, at the starting point of our passage, He's interrupted by the guy who's probably like the village idiot, okay? He goes, you know, there's Jesus talking about life and meaning and purpose. And the guy says, oh, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, sorry, um, tell my brother to give me money from the inheritance. And you can imagine everyone else being like, oh, John, just shut up. Oh, it's not John, like, Isaac, Moses, shush, be quiet. Jesus, though, does what he often does, man. He doesn't, he doesn't um, address the question beyond telling the guy, shush. <laughs> Instead, he takes the motivation behind it and he applies it to us all. Um, and he does so by telling a parable. Now, a parable um, is a story that Jesus tells which has a bigger meaning, points to a bigger meaning. But ready for a culture clash? He does not only tell these parables to make complex things clear for us. He also tells us, he tells parables to make things more confusing for other people. Um, do you have ears to hear what he says? Do you have eyes to see, to understand? Are you confounded and confused or... Does it provide clarity and, and uh, does it point you towards him? Then he tells this parable. Have a look at it here. Chapter 12 is where we're going from. Verse 16 uh, to verse 19. Um, it's a very, very simple 
sort of setting. Um, it's a story about a rich farmer who has an incredibly good year, uh, such a good year um, that he really can kick back and, and do nothing. I read from verse 18, he has this great year, and then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this is a story, a parable he tells where the farmer is the main character, but of course, this is not a story about farmers. The farmer represents us, people. This is someone who is a successful person in the eyes of the world. They've achieved, they've accomplished, they've attained, and now they're right at the precipice of the great, the great crown, contentment. They can kick back, sit back, and do Nothing. Now let's just think about contentment in our culture. What does that look like for us? 2023 Central Coast. Well, I want to suggest to you that there's two major ways we seek contentment or we see contentment sought for in culture. Um, Both extremes, opposites, if you like. Number one is more. In other words, we are all wrapped up and caught up in the idea that the more things that I have, the more satisfied and content I'll be. Or think of it this way, I'm discontent, I'm unhappy because I do not have the things that I need to be happy. If only I, if only, oh, if only I had this, if only I had that, you understand. Now, it doesn't have to be more like I need a bigger house, I need a bigger car, although it's often that kind of thing. It can be just different. I need a different house, a different spouse. I need a different job, a different place to live. Uh, What's stopping me is my current circumstances and situation. Now, none of us want to think that way, and yet nearly all of us do, don't we? None of us like intentionally go, oh, I'm going to live like that, but we all find ourselves wrapped up and caught up in this idea that, that I need more things. However, there is another opposite way that we see contentment sought for, and it's almost the exact opposite on a surface level, and that is less. And we see that particularly on the central coast, I have to say, far more than Sydney. Um, The idea of less for contentment means I'm too busy. I know what the problem is in my life. I'm too preoccupied with things that don't... My iPhone, my my job, my whatever. I know what I need to do. Surf. Surfing's the problem. I'm not getting enough time on the water. Is that what you guys call it? The water? Yeah, the waves, whatever. There's water things, and I want to do those things, and that's what I need to do. That's my problem. For me, it's I don't have enough time playing cricket. That's my problem. I need to be more, you know, the simple life. I need to go camping more. I need to grow my hair a bit, play the guitar. It's always the guitar. It's never like the piano accordion. You know what I mean? I need to relax and learn. You never hear that very often. Oh, man. The simple life, the authentic life, the real life. That's what I need. I need to change of pace. Then I will be content. Now, fascinating, I want to point out two things about both these perspectives. Number one, whilst both of them might seem to be suggesting different ways of approaching the topic, in essence, they're actually saying the same thing, aren't they? They're giving a similar diagnosis and a similar attempt at cure. What they're saying is, the reason I'm discontent is because of my personal circumstance and situation today. Now, it might be external, it might be internal, I'm not being true enough to myself, the outside, the people I'm around are jerks all the time, I've got to go hang out with those non-jerks in somewhere, did you say Canberra? Canada, Canada, oh Canada, I agree with, Canberra, I was like, get out, no, no, but Canada, Canada, $10 for that mustachioed man over there. So, what do we have? Um, I need more of this, and then I'll be happy, 
but the less is the same thing. I need just less of this, and then I'll be... They're saying, they're offering the same thing. But the second observation I want to offer to you is that the problem at the center of these perspectives of contentment above anything else is they don't work. And you know they don't work. The evidence of our lives is here that they don't work. We find ourselves in a merry-go-round in life, don't we? Up and down, up and down, round and round. But where does a merry-go-round stop? The same place you started. You don't go anywhere. You get the things that you want and you want something else. When I was young, I wanted to be old. Now I'm old, I want to be young. When I was small, I wanted to be big. Then I got big and I wanted to be smaller. When I had dark, non-grey hair, I really wanted grey... No, I didn't. Um, so, no matter what I get, I always want... And we're all stuck in this. The question is why? Um, well, there's a science behind it uh, that I want to offer you before looking at what Jesus says. Um, uh, Professor Laurie Santos is the, um, uh, a cognitive scientist who works at Harvard University, one of the top universities in the world, runs a course on happiness. Um, and she's the world-renowned expert on happiness, the most popular course at Harvard. And she has a podcast, a series of books. She's a bona fide celebrity expert on, on the human experience of happiness. She was interviewed by an Australian newspaper and asked the question, why is it that no matter what we do, how much we get, we're not happy? How come it doesn't work? And what she said was staggering. Now, if you zoned out till now, back in. Listen, listen. This scientist from Harvard, said something truly revolutionary that kind of slipped through to the keeper. Um, And yet, a truly staggering thing for a scientist to say in 2022. Why don't the things we do produce what we want? Well, this is what she said. Our minds lie to us. Our intuitions and instincts can't be trusted. And so we search for happiness and contentment in things that actually make us unhappy. Now, she used the example of things like money, career, reputation, popularity. These things we believe will give us what we want, but we get them and they never give us what we want. Uh, Exhibit A, Rupert Murdoch, uh, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. These men never retire. Have you noticed? (laughs) They never stop. It's never enough. It's never enough. Why is that so staggering? Well, very simply, that outside of what Jesus offers to the world, the narrative about life that is in the cultural air we breathe says that true meaning in life comes from within. So your problem in life is that you're not true to yourself. You're not being real enough with yourself. And that's not a modern philosophy. That's that's an ancient one. To thine own self be true. Um, if it is to be, it's up to me. I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my soul. I've got to follow my heart. I've got to be me. But what is Santos saying to us? Don't be me. The authentic you is leading you somewhere bad. In fact, don't listen to yourself. Fight your instincts. Now, that is a staggering thing to say for a non-Christian scientist. But for us as Christians, it's not surprising. Why? Because Jesus Christ has been saying the same thing for 2,000 years. Being true to yourself will just harm yourself. 
Now, that's one perspective on why contentment doesn't work, and we see that in culture and community and, and the scientific, I suppose, assessment of what's truly going on. But I want to suggest to you that what Jesus says is far more profound, far more powerful, personal, but also far truer. Come back to the parable here. We see the successful person um, who's done everything they ever wanted on the precipice of, of contentment in life. Um, to everyone else's opinion, they've made it. They're, they're just they're killing life, you know. But to God, listen to the perspective that Jesus offers that God has. Verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Imagine, will you? This bloke on his balcony, he's rich, you know, he's got his balcony, there's a penthouse apartment overlooking Terrigal Beach, he's got the haven over there, you can see a boca around the corner, he's just, he cracks open a, no, that's a long neck is not fancy, so he's not in woi woi, so he gets a bottle of champagne, you know, and he pours that, he, he, champagne, and he pours it, he's just, oh, looks inside, there's the wife, they've got their travel plans, oh, we're going to go there, 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 and then, <gasps> You fool, God says. You fool. Tonight you will die. You've lived your entire life for something that you can't take with you. It's gone. And it doesn't matter how fancy your coffin is. If your, if your coffin is gold-plated, full of cash, you can't take it with you. Now, in the eyes of God, this man is a fool. But why? Well, believe it or not, that word fool is the key to understanding this parable. I want to go even further than that. Check this out. The word fool is actually a really helpful way to understand all of Christianity. All of Jesus' perspective and what he brings is that word fool. Partially, let me explain. The word fool does not mean idiot, moron, jerk. Okay, It has a very specific meaning that means without thought, thoughtless. In other words, a fool is someone who, who does not think about life who does not think about what's going on, who doesn't understand what's happening in life and just does, who misreads what's truly happening. Think of it this way. A fool is someone who does not understand reality. And so therefore they make decisions that indicate a lack of understanding of that reality. Does this make sense? That they pour effort and energy into meaningless things. They attach meaning and value to things that have no meaning and value and they just go for it. Let me illustrate this. I've got, um, just checking he's not in the room. I've got... uh, uh, a son called Sonny, who's nine, but when he was around three, he loved uh, to play hide and seek, but he had a very unique way of playing it. He'd go, Dad, can I play hide and seek? And I said, okay. Goes off to the room, I can't down, ready or not, here I come. And I'd walk into the other room, and there I would walk, and there's Sonny, same time, same place, every time, sitting on the couch like this. <laughs> now, of course, what do I do? This is great news for me because I don't actually have to find him. And I can just check my phone and pretend to find him. You know, looking under behind curtains. Sonny, where are you? <laughs> under the couch, going upstairs. Where's Sonny? Oh. Simple question. Why has Sonny got his eyes shut? Why does he believe he's hidden? Well, he believes that because he can't see me, I can't see him. Now, is that true? No. So why does he believe it? Because he's a four-year-old. What did you think I was going to say? How dare you call my son a four-year-old? What do four-year-olds know about reality? Nothing. Okay? Nada. Zilch. They just know the reality of annoying people. That's it. Okay? Beyond that, 
very little value. Now, four-year-olds know nothing about reality, so they don't act in a way. Apologies to any four-year-olds here, you're the best. They don't, they don't act in a way that indicates that. They do what they want, when they want, and what do we think? We think it's cute, but imagine flipping it around. This time, I'm hiding. Sonny counts down, and he walks in the room, and there's me. Now, that's no longer cute, is he? Is it? That's worrying. Because <laughs> I'm not a four-year-old. I'm a fool. I'm a 42-year-old who doesn't understand reality, who doesn't understand how things really operate and work. Jesus is saying that this man in the parable is a fool. But how? He's successful, he's wealthy, he's rich. There's no indication that he's particularly evil, wicked or horrible. He's, he, there's no indication of, you know, that he's irreligious or, or anything like this. So how is this person a fool? Well, there's two ways that Jesus points us to. Now, bear, stay with me here because this is just the key to understanding Jesus' perspective and diagnosis of humanity. How is this man a fool? Two ways. Number one, he acts as if death is not real, and as if this life is all there is. He gives no thought to what's happening next, nothing at all. He just pours all of his effort and energy, he's poured all of his effort and energy into the here and now. His only plans are for his future enjoyment and pleasure here on this life. He acts as if death isn't coming. He acts as if the only thing that matters is the right here and now, that this is all that life is. Now, as foolish as that is, it's not the peak of his, of his foolishness. Listen to how Jesus finishes the parable in verse 21. This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Now, rich towards God is a strange expression. Let me just assure you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean money. It means relationship. This bloke has acted as if who God is, what God says, what God wants is an utter irrelevancy. And we see that in the parable when he talks about his own life, when he talks about his past and his future. I have done this. I have done that. I will do this. I will do that. The most common word throughout this parable is I. He has no time for God. He acts as if God is of zero consequence to him. So, so what do we have here? Well, let's just try and tie some threads together, connect some dots. We have the world's perspective of contentment. Where do we find it? In more or less, but it does not work. Why doesn't it work? Well, science says it doesn't work because we're chasing contentment in places that will never give it to us. But Jesus offers a completely different perspective as to why discontentment is not filled by seeking contentment in this life. You see, Jesus' perspective makes it very clear to us that the greatest problem we have in life, and we share it, dear friends, is not situational. It's not circumstantial, it's not emotional, it's not mental or psychological. But please don't mishear me, I'm not saying those things are of no consequence at all, not at all. Those things can have an overbearingly powerful effect on our lives, and I'm not saying otherwise, but please don't mishear me. As powerfully negative as those things can be to us, there is a bigger problem. It's not situational, it's relational. It's not emotional or mental or psychological, it's spiritual. The greatest problem we have in life is not discontentment, it's disconnection. We were created to be rich towards God. 
We were created to, to be in a relationship with God, to love God, to know him. Our greatest problem is that all of us from birth, by the way, are relationally disconnected from God. We do not love him as we should. Now, what that means is that the big issue around discontentment for us, the, the, the big problem with discontentment is not that it makes us discontent, it's that it distracts us from the far, far greater problem we're facing. To Jesus, utter foolishness is acting as if this world is all there is because it's not. Jesus says every single one of us are eternal beings with eternal futures in 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 years' time. Every single one of us will be alive. But he then points out the second version of foolishness, which makes the first one even worse. Because where you will be in a 1,000 years' time and how you will get there in 10,000 years' time is entirely dependent on how you relate to God now. So foolishness in life is to pretend like this world is all there is and pretend as if God means nothing. Now, I want to say it's very possible you don't agree with that statement, and that's fine. But what I want to, what I want to offer to you is, if that's true, as I utterly believe it is, as many here do believe that that's true, what it means is that we need to reshape contentment. We need to change how we view contentment. We need to almost redefine what contentment is and what contentment actually does. If contentment in life for you and I is simply being content with our lot in life, you know, just chilling out. The other day I was driving down um, uh, uh, the entrance road and there's a, um, a house for sale there and a real estate agent uh, has their sign out the front and nothing against real estate agents. We love real estate agents. You're wonderful people. This side of the front's got a photo of the house and the rest of it. And then it's got this tagline of the real estate company underneath. And it said, feeling blessed, never stressed. I'm like, do you know what interest rates are like at the moment? What are you talking about? That's our view of contentment. Never stressed, feeling blessed, everything's terrific. But the truth that Jesus offers means that if that's your perspective of contentment, then pursuing that endlessly will do nothing but fail. It means that pursuing contentment in life is the most important thing, is an utterly meaningless pursuit. Because even if you get it, so what? It's like fluffing the pillow of a corpse. Who cares? It's like changing the tires of a car with no engine. Who cares? Painting a house without you get the picture doesn't do anything. But that's not all, it's not the greatest danger. Seeking contentment in this way distracts us and, 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 and clouds our minds from the actual real purpose of discontentment. You see, discontentment is a feeling, an emotion, a desire that all of us have within us and it's a desire and a feeling that all of us have within us that God has allowed to be within us. Why has he done that? It's not to point us towards temporary material contentment today. Rather, it's a sign, a symptom, if you like, pointing us not only to the biggest problem we face, but also to the actual solution. 
You see, this parable, Jesus is not telling it to, to only warn, warn us, although he is, but also to point us. He's not telling it to, to, to destroy us, but rather to, to, to lead us to where we need to go. Let me illustrate this. Imagine that you're in the middle of a desert um, and, and your, your car breaks down and you've, you know, you've been driving for days, you haven't seen anyone, and you realise, my goodness, if I'm in big, big trouble, you know. Big trouble. And so after a while, you know, you're sweating and sweating and you decide, I'm going I'm to make a walk for it. I'm going to walk and try and find help. So you walk and you, you get walking. Hour after hour after hour, the sweat, the drenching, you're drenching with sweat. You've got no water. Your throat getting drier and drier and parched and parched. Eventually, you just end up on your hands and knees, moving forward slowly and slowly, inches from death. When suddenly, in the middle of your, you can't believe what you're seeing, a 7-Eleven right there. You rub your eyes, this is a mirage, but you go up and then you go in and bliss, the glorious bliss of air conditioning streams upon you. You can't believe it. You crawl up to the the counter and you say to the guy, water, water. And he says, water? What's water? And you look around and you realise that this shop only sells cigarettes and newspapers. When you're thirsty, your throat gets parched. Um, your body sends you signals. What is it sending you? Where is it sending you? It's sending you to the thing that will quench the thirst, which is water. When you get hungry, or your stomach rumbles, you get irrationally grumpy, all those type of things. Why? Because your body is sending you signals. There is something that exists that quenches that hunger. Food, tiredness, the same. So if in your life... You have within you a discontent with the present, a restlessness about meaning and purpose, a desire for more than anything that you go through in life. Why would God give you that? Because something, no, someone exists which quenches that desire and need. It's not reputation or popularity. It's not travel. Man, we think travel is going to be like some life-changing experience. And then when you get there, you realise people are jerks everywhere. (laughs) It's not property. Feeling blessed, never stressed. Are you serious? Get out of here. Good line. Get out of here. It's not money. It's not being more like yourself. You're the greatest enemy you've ever known to yourself. It's God. God created you for himself. You ever know that? You ever understand that? He made you for himself. Stands to reason, doesn't it? See, the parable Jesus tells, verse 21, look at it again. It's not just telling us what we've failed to do, all of us by not loving God, by rejecting God, by saying no to him. It's, it's also showing us what we should do. Verse 21, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. The meaning and purpose of our existence is for us to love God, to know him. And that's why none of these other things will ever satisfy you because you've been created, designed to only be satisfied by him, but that's the problem, isn't it? Because all of us have turned away from him. If we treated someone else, 
that we know, the way that we treat God, man, we would never see that person ever again. It would be horrible for them. If we got treated by other people the way that we treated God, how do we treat God? We try to manipulate him. God, if you give me what I want, I'll go be a missionary somewhere horrible, woi woi or something. I'll go there and that, that's where I'll be. You minor, somewhere horrible. New Zealand, oh. Melbourne, I'll keep going. No, um, I'll fool him. He won't see this coming. Hey, God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. I'll go to church. We act like we know better than him. Oh, God, you say this in your word, but that doesn't. My God would never tell me not to do my God. As if your opinion of reality in any way shapes God's truth. Or worse still, we act like it's an utter insignificance. Not even worth the dirt on the bottom of your shoe. You're nothing. You're invisible. And that is why, even though we haven't been rich towards God, the good news that this parable is pointing to us is not the end of the story being our rejection of him, but rather God being rich towards us. How has God been rich towards us? Because he gave and sent his son to become a fool in the eyes of the world. To become poor in the eyes of the world. To become nothing, less than nothing. See, not long after Jesus said these words, um, he steadfastly walked into Jerusalem. We, We heard about it a few weeks ago at Easter, but should we ever get tired of hearing what Jesus did? He was greeted by cheering crowds but it didn't last he was betrayed abandoned sold out tortured spat upon mocked and killed Luke chapter 23 says this about noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining the curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus cried out with a loud voice father into your hands I commit my spirit When he said this, he breathed his last. You know, um, many people would view the death of Jesus as a great tragedy, a horrible tragedy, and in fact, a source of mockery. In the ancient world, Jesus' death on the cross was seen as an absolute joke. What a fool! What a tragic, pathetic fool! But for those of us with eyes to see, what do we see? It's not foolishness. Jesus' death on the cross is the personification of wisdom. Because Jesus on that cross took the punishment that you and I deserve. He died for you. He died for me. He died for sinners. Because God loves you. God made you for him. And that's the only thing that will ever give you satisfaction. God loves you, not because you've earned it, not because you're good enough, but even though you're not. Now, what does all of this mean? Well, what's the question today again? Will being a Christian make me content? Now, who thinks I'm going to say no? Who thinks I'm going to say yes? Who thinks I'm going to say no, but yes? (laughs) Uh, Two-thirds of you are wrong. Will being a Christian make you content? Yes. But not content in the way you want, content in the way you need. 
It will not make your life perfect, tranquil, no stress, feeling blessed. In fact, what does Jesus promise his followers? Suffering, rejection, death. They will hate you because they hated me. That's what he promises us. Becoming a Christian has not eradicated my problems, it's multiplied my problems. And I want to say that Christians, let's all agree with one thing. Do Christians still suffer? Yes. Do Christians still face disease and death? Yes. Do Christians still face relational breakdown and difficulty? Yes. The idea of a tranquil future where there's no more problems, the only way that happens is if you're in isolation in prison and then you'll become your biggest problem for once. The contentment that Jesus promises is not the tranquil picture of today and nor should it be. We're meant to have a discontent with suffering, with death, with persecution, with with hardship. But the contentment Jesus offers and God brings us is far, far better. Contentment in the world says, you change, you'll be content. But the contentment that Jesus offers is not, you change and be content, but that you and I can rely on the never changing, always present, endlessly consistent care of our creator God who knows you and loves you. And so why would you need to worry? Why would you worry about food and drink and what you will wear? Does he not clothe the the flowers and the birds? See, the future version of yourself where you've changed to make yourself... that's, a, that's a, it's an absolute fantasy. But as Christians, what can we depend upon? Jesus promises that by trusting in him, we will be forgiven and have eternal life. And eternal life, that knowledge, that the promise of the never-ending, consistent love of God, that is what changes everything. It's utterly life-transforming. And in my final minute, let me give you a few examples of how. If you trust in Jesus, if you have eternal life, what it means is that you can know no matter what that God has forgiven all of your sins, all of them, all of them, even that one, all of them. He will never turn his back on you and walk away. You do no longer need to live in guilt and shame. You don't have to deny your weaknesses and your failures. Instead, you rest in him and on him and his eternal promises. You are not what you've done. You are his child. On your worst day, on your best day, his child. Yes, we will be surprised by what happens around the corner, but we know what our final destination is. We know that we will be cared for along the way. When suffering comes, we are able to see it for what it is. God moving us towards our final destination that he has already written. Our final chapter is secure. And so suffering is nothing more but a light and momentary affliction compared with eternal glory that is ours in Christ. You know that you are never alone. God is always with you. You are never unloved or uncared for. You are not dependent on the opinions of of other people. You can have joy, not because 
You've done nothing to warrant it. But because you can know that you are loved by the one who created all things, knows you by name, who has seen more of you than anyone else imaginable, and yet loves you more than you could possibly imagine, the feast, the famine, the birth, the death, the health, the sickness, the pleasure, the pain, he stands over it all. Your past, your present, your future. Everything that has happened, everything that will happen, will happen. We may plan our plot, we may plan our life, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Now that is contentment. Knowing God who controls all things. And I want to say to you as we end, if you're a Christian here today, uh, I'm about to pray, um, and I, I want to invite you to bring those things that you are struggling with, that you're, um, you're dealing, the discontents that we feel, the, 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 the worries, anxieties, and bring them before God and pray for his peace that transcends all understanding. But I also want to invite you, if you're not a Christian today, to become a Christian. Would you like to become a Christian? Well, Jesus tells us you can. Turn around from the way you've been living and put your trust in him. Put your trust in his death for your salvation. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you like to do that? Well, I want to pray right now and give you the opportunity to do that as well. So you bow your heads and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for every good gift you give to us and we thank you so much that Jesus died and rose from the dead, securing for us eternal life and securing for us a relationship with you. Father, for those of us who are Christians here today, we cast upon you our burdens, anxieties, worries and stresses now. Lord, let us remember continually, constantly, consistently your great love for us that never fails, that never changes. And let that be what captures our hearts and our souls, not worry and and concern, but your love for us. And for, for the men and women here who are not yet Christians, but would like to be, Father, on their behalf I pray that we are sorry for our sin. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me for what I've done. I know that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. Help me to follow him as my saviour and my king. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.